Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you this morning that we can gather as your people as you have prescribed us to do. That we can come and worship you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Father, would you quiet our hearts as we open your word? Would you speak to us? Would you implant your word deep within us that we might respond and be fruitful following you and making disciples that follow you? In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, I brought a message from Acts 2, 42 through 47, a bit of a vision, at least God's vision, from a framework for the church in how we make disciples. And in that message, talked about the pillars of making disciples, and we do it through the apostolic teaching and through the fellowship, through the breaking of bread and through the prayers, and that we would have all things in common, that we would live together. I opened last week talking about Boulder, Colorado, and that having a view above and seeing everything else out, and I can't use that one again, so we'll travel this week back to California, where I'm from, and we'll go to Yosemite. How about that? Um, When I was a kid, we used to go almost every summer to Yosemite, and I remember... um, my son, Kyle, being very literal and phonetic, you know, he would say that it's not Yosemite, it's Yosemite. Um, but my father um, was a bread man. He started working for a company that was based here in Dallas, and he was a delivery driver when he first started. Go to grocery stores and restaurants and fast food places and deliver bread. And occasionally he would get the route when we lived in Fresno, California to go up to Yosemite and deliver bread up there. Now they would go through a lot of bread um, up there and he would have various stops. And one of them was a place called Glacier Point. You may not be familiar with it. You may be familiar with Yosemite. How many have been to Yosemite? Show of hands. It's a beautiful place. I mean, there's a lot to do there. And when you go into Yosemite, they call it the valley floor. There's campgrounds. There's the pine trees all around. There's Yosemite Village. There's the Iwani Hotel. Um, you can walk around on paths. You can see Yosemite Falls. You see a lot of things. But you also notice that you're surrounded by mountains. And you're in awe and wonder of the mountains, but you can't see the horizon. I talked about this a little bit last week with Boulder, Colorado. But... If you take the old highway, it's called Highway 41, it's a 13-mile drive and you ascend upward. You go to a place called Glacier Point. There is a little, or used to be, a little restaurant up there, a little village up there, and my father would deliver bread. And I remember him doing that and filling in, and then when we, the next trip we went back, he goes, you've got to see this. See Yosemite from a whole different perspective. And so he drove us up there. And it's incredible. It's 3,200 feet above the valley floor. So better than a half a mile up. And from there, you see it all. I mean, you think you can literally see Nevada when you're, when you're looking right because you're up above most of the mountains that are surrounding there. Now, why do I bring this up? We're, we're starting a new series in First Timothy And then we're going to go to 2 Timothy, and then we're going to go to Titus. These are called the pastoral epistles. They're called pastoral because they're written to individuals. 
Paul has taken the time to write to disciples of his. Apostolic delegates is what Dick Lucas calls them. Those that are sent out to do the work of the apostle in various places. Timothy was one of those. So he writes to Timothy two letters during his stay at Ephesus. He writes to Titus who is in Crete. And then he writes a letter, short one chapter, to Philemon. All of these are pastoral in nature. They're Paul writing to an individual, but it's not to just the individual. Because as the apostles wrote to individuals such as this, or to various churches, they wrote to everyone in that particular church. So even though this is a letter to Timothy, it's to the entire church. How do we know? If you go to the very last verse of Timothy, Paul says, grace to you. The you is plural. So it's really grace to you all. Paul was from southern Tarsus. (laughs) He was a good old boy. So this is to y'all. So Paul has written to Timothy. And I, I tell you that that vista vantage that I'm talking about from Yosemite so you can see above it all because God does want us as believers, as followers in Christ to get the big picture, to see how He is working because you don't always see it with the human eye. But you can see how He is moving through things. Paul doesn't want Timothy to get lost. He doesn't want the people at Ephesus to get lost. They've already began to wonder, as we'll find out in just a few moments. We want to see the big picture so that we can go about our work as the church in a manner that understands where we're going, where the horizon is, the coming of Christ yet to come. This is the work of a disciple. It's a work of those who make disciples. So part of what I want to do this morning is give you a little bit of a historical background. I want to set the stage. When I was interning here years and years ago, um, at times, if I didn't have duties on a Sunday, I might venture out and go to another sister church. Yeah, I did. Okay, I confess. Um, Had gone to Providence, had gone to... Patrick's Church, Christ Community, had gone to Redeemer McKinney. Um, One of those times we went to New St. Peter's. And if you've been to New St. Peter's, they don't have their own building. Wish they had their own building, but they don't have their own building. They use the Dallas Children's Theater. And so my wife and I walk in and it's built like an amphitheater, you know, the the chairs at the top and it, it goes downward. And it's really odd sometimes because there's a pulpit up there. But then there's a background. There's the stage is set. And I remember going there one of the times and I go, I know exactly what they're doing. They're doing the nutcracker. Because you can see all the images, all the, the backdrops and everything else that they're using. But that's part of the agreement that they have. They could use the amphitheater, but when they have a play or something going on, there's, there's a backdrop. Well, 1 Timothy 
if you read First Timothy, there's, there's not a whole lot of backdrop to it. Yet, you can learn a little bit about Paul who wrote this epistle, and you can learn a little bit about Timothy, not only in First Timothy, but Second Timothy, um, and various other places. But I, I want to give you an idea of what's going on. From two vantage points, we talked about Yosemite, and there's the valley floor, and you really can't see everything that's going on, but you can see the hustle and bustle of the village. And then there's the vantage point from Glacier Point where you go, yeah, I see it all. I know exactly what's going on. Well, that's what we need to be seeing as disciples of Christ, followers of Christ. We need to see the vantage point so that we can live and make disciples on the valley floor because we have an idea where things are going. We see the big picture. And so Paul is the most prolific writer in the New Testament. Thirteen epistles he's written. He is a major character in the book of Acts. We know the big stories about uh, Paul from the very beginning. We're all very familiar, if you're a regular churchgoer or if you've been here, we went through, Pastor Jacob and myself, the book of Acts, and we did a series on that. It took a little bit longer than a year to get through, but I think it was well worth it. I hope you enjoyed it. If you'll remember, Paul was a Pharisee. Paul was previously named Saul. He was from Tarsus, southern Tarsus, but he was from Tarsus. And so Saul was a persecutor of the church. We're going to see that in 1 Timothy. But he was trying to gather up people, and as he was headed out of Jerusalem to Damascus, he meets Christ face-to-face on the Damascus road. And Saul is never the same. In fact, he doesn't even go by the same name. He becomes Paul, the Greek version of the Hebrew Saul. So he is transformed. But then it's interesting, there's a dormant period. Acts goes back to talking about Peter. What's going on with Paul? But this is part of the backdrop. In Galatians, the first letter that Paul wrote... He talks about being in Arabia. What was he doing in Arabia? He met face to face with Christ. He explains in his letter to the Galatians that I didn't receive the gospel. Christ came in the flesh, that he died on the cross, that he was buried, and then he rose again. What he tells the Corinthian church in chapter 15, he says, I heard it directly from Jesus himself in Arabia. This was Paul's defense as an apostle. Apostles had to meet a standard. They had to see the risen Christ. And Paul did. And that is the beginning of this backdrop. Because Paul begins to write these letters to the churches. He does three missionary journeys. Many of you know that if you've gone through the study of Acts. On his first missionary journey, he goes through a little town, a little village, Lystra. Now that's where Timothy is from. It doesn't say that he met Timothy in that first one, but Paul preached the gospel of Jesus Christ in that city. Then he was stoned, and then he fled. And then he goes back 
to Lystra again. What a testimony of someone who was devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ and to the teaching and the preaching of the gospel. He had just been stoned and he goes back. One wonders how much of an impact that had on Timothy. We learn from 2 Timothy that Timothy learned the gospel from his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice. It is a great thing what you mothers do. Do you know how many people have come to Christ through the witness of mothers? Augustine came to faith through the prayers and through the testimony and the witnessing of his mother Monica. J. Gretchen Machen, a stalwart in the faith at Princeton and later at Westminster Seminary, he came to faith because of his mother Mary teaching him the Westminster Standards, the Shorter Catechism, the Gospel according to the Word of God. So Timothy has an influence and comes to faith, probably through the preaching of Paul, probably through the raising of his mother. And then on a second missionary journey, what we saw in our moment of reflection, Paul sees Timothy, and Timothy is well thought of. He's probably a teenager, 18 to 20 years of age, late teens, early 20s. And Paul hears testimony about this young man. And he says, I want you to come with me. Now it's very possible that he was looking for a protege at that point in time. If you remember from his first missionary journey, he and Barnabas go out from the church at Antioch and they're spreading the gospel. They go to the island of of Cyprus and then they go on from there and they had a protege at that time named John Mark John Mark goes this is too tough I I don't like this I want to go home and so when the church sends them out again Paul says I'm going Barnabas but John Mark's not coming and they split what a wondrous thing they actually multiply Barnabas goes his way. Paul and Silas go another. But at this particular place, Lystra, he picks up Timothy and brings him along. He becomes a protege. They're going, are you going somewhere with this? Yes, I am. (laughs) On his third missionary journey, Paul spends time at Ephesus. About three years, according to Scripture, he was there. He was teaching in the synagogue for three months and then they boot him out of the synagogue. And he teaches at a place called Tyrannus Hall. And he spends three years there preaching the gospel. Timothy's with him. He later returns to Jerusalem after this third missionary journey. Now here's two important pieces in this backdrop. As he heads back to Jerusalem, he wants to go by Ephesus, the church that he spent three years in. But he doesn't go to the city. He goes outside the city, a place called Miletus. And he calls for the elders in Acts chapter 20. And Paul prophesies to the elders at Ephesus. And he says to the elders of Ephesus, he goes, beware. Because certain wolves are going to come in, ravenous wolves are going to come in from without and from within. And they're going to teach bad doctrine. They're going to look to lead people astray. 
that should have gotten the elders' attention. Should have gotten their attention. Should have put them on guard. Paul will tell Timothy in this epistle, guard the deposit, the gospel, that's been entrusted to you, Timothy. And then he is supposed to find faithful men to guard the deposit, to guard the gospel, the true teaching. It's the only way of salvation. The gospel of Jesus Christ. So he sees, Paul sees him and he heads back to Jerusalem. He goes to his Roman imprisonment and lo and behold, he pens his letter to the Ephesians. Now if you read that letter to the Ephesians, there's no problems in the church. It's a glorious letter. If you want to learn more about the letter, there's the inductive Bible study that's just starting on Monday nights. It's via Zoom or in person here, or you can do it with Cheryl Kendrick on Fridays. But it is glorious if you know the letter of the Ephesians. It begins with the salvation of God in Christ Jesus, the deposit of the Holy Spirit, our inheritance. It says who we are. We are now sons and daughters in Christ. Hallelujah. We are now saved. We have the promise of eternal life. And then to make it even better, Paul then says, here's what you were. You were children of wrath. And we read our affirmation of faith, but God, but God. So here you have the Ephesians church. The elders were told there's trouble coming. And then you have this letter that is pristine. No problems in the church at that point. 1 Timothy is written probably four years after. When you look at 1 Timothy, if if you're an elder... If you're a member of this church and you're a follower of Christ, you'd have to go, what happened? What happened? All of a sudden, life on the valley floor in the, in the city of Ephesus, in the church, is one of asceticism, legalism, false teaching. They're into myths and genealogies. Whichever way the wind's blowing is what they're taking on in the church. So Paul goes, I have no one like this man, no one like Timothy. And he sends Timothy and he tells him to remain there and charge people within the church, don't teach any other doctrine, a different doctrine, a gospel other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's your backdrop. There's your backdrop. A church that started with Paul's preaching that the people of Ephesus said, he's turning the world upside down, is now having all kinds of problems. Why? Because they're not busy making disciples. They're not true to the apostolic teaching. They're not true to the fellowship. They're not true to the breaking of bread. They're not true 
to the prayers. They're not living as one in Christ. Brothers and sisters, it is so easy for a church to go wayward, to stray. Have you ever been in the kitchen? Go, what are we going to have tonight? I don't know. Let's see what we have in the fridge and let's just kind of throw some things together. Sometimes it turns out real well. <laughs> Other times you go, well, I'll do a little bit of this and I'll do a little bit of that and I'll use this for the meat and then you take a bite of it and go, mm, not good. The church can't take a little bit of this, a little bit of that, throw it in, mix it around, and go, this is the gospel. We're to be like Paul. What we receive is to come from the Lord Jesus Christ. We're to follow Him and His commands. That's the Great Commission. So that is the backdrop. He wants Timothy to get the big picture. Now we have to put things in place. We have to know what the plan is. The plan is that we make followers of Jesus Christ, that we disciple, that we nurture, and that we look to put order within the church. And so that's what Paul is looking to do through Timothy. Now what's life look like on the valley floor in Ephesus. We see the big picture above us. What, it, what was it like? Well, Ephesus, when I first did this study in, in 2014, um, I used Frisco as um, a like city. At that point in time, in 2014, Frisco was 100,000 people. It's not the case anymore. It's 210,000. It's doubled in size. So I, I want to use Frisco, but I can't for the population. But We'll see how it goes. So city size, it's about the size of Wichita Falls now. Um, But it is a growing place. Ephesus was on a major trade route. The the historic city of Ephesus was actually had a harbor. Now if you went to to Ephesus, which is modern-day Turkey, you're four miles inland from the water, the Mediterranean Sea. But at that point in time, they did have a harbor there, so there was shipping that took place. It was on a Roman trade route, and so there was a lot of commerce going through the city of Ephesus, a booming economy. And the silver trade was extensive. The silver trade came in because they had a temple there to Artemis. Artemis of the Ephesians. Again, Acts 19. And so they making these trinkets, these idols and everything else, booming business. You know, we're get, we've got all this stuff going on. So the economy is, is very, very good. When the gospel came though, it hampered those businesses that targeted idolatry. Because people were coming to Christ and going, I don't need this anymore. They throw it out or melt it and use it for money. It was a booming place, not unlike Frisco is today. I mean, I, when I first went to Frisco years ago, um, it's when I had my sign company and had to get permits to put signage up and things like that. This is in the early 2000s. And I literally remember going to the city office in Frisco and it was in a trailer. It was a double wide before they built all the elaborate buildings that they have right now. There was nothing. 
I mean, the, I remember talking to someone in permitting and, and said, we, we like the growth. They were growing exponentially. This is 2005. Their growth rate was at 365% annually. Just exploding. They couldn't put an infrastructure in place fast enough. But this is how it was. Major economy booming. Religion was also big in Ephesus. Like I mentioned, the temple of Artemis. But emperor worship was also going on in that part of the region. There was a bit of a competition and Artemis pretty much won out. Religion's big in Frisco. There is documentation that right now in Frisco there are 52 churches that are listed for Frisco. Just those that are listed where you can go in and they have a website or things like that. Some of every kind. There's Methodist, there's Episcopal, there's Presbyterian, there's Evangelical Free, there's the Mormon Church of Latter-day Saints, you name it, it's up there. Non-denominational, they have it all. They even have other kinds of religion. There's the Star Center, where the cowboys are. It's kind of like a temple. People go there from all over the place. They got to get their little trinkets and everything else. I'm a f- football fan, but if you have you ever been to the Star, have you have you ever looked at it? I mean, they've they built that practice center. Okay, Jerry Jones and his Jerry World is, is going on. Surrounded it with shops and restaurants and everything else. And you can go and you can worship the star. I mean, I'm, that's tongue-in-cheek, but you can. I mean, some people make that every aspect of their lives. They live and they breathe according to what the Dallas Cowboys do. Now Frisco's gone a step further. I'm not against sports. Don't, don't get me wrong here. I'm not against sports. I'm not. But I'm in Frisco. They have the Cowboys Practice Center. The Dallas Stars are up there. FC Dallas, the soccer team is up there. I mean, you can fill your time and your family's time, and it's almost like religion. You can spend more time there than you do with the church with those who are at your right and your left and in front of you and behind you. And all of a sudden life gets so busy that the church is the one that gets pushed out. Now that's the problem that's taking place in Ephesus when Paul writes 1 Timothy. Christ is last. His church is becoming last. To make it interesting, they're kind of sprinkling in the latest thing to talk about in the churches. So religion. What was society like during that period of time? It's interesting. It's interesting. Society was based on the household. Households were important. So much so that Caesar said that he was the patriarch of households. He called himself the pater familias. 
But life operated around the households in Roman and Greek culture. It was the basic unit of society. Today we would say it's the family. And so threats to households were threats to the empire. That's how serious Caesar took it. And so Paul sprinkles in that in his letter to Timothy. Household is a key word in this particular epistle. Nine times Paul will write to Timothy and he'll talk about the household of God. It's not different than his analogy on marriage. In Ephesians chapter 5, where he talks about the role of the husband, to love their wives as Christ loves the church. And the role of the wife to submit to the husband and respect them. That, that this is both the promise that is given from Genesis that for this reason a husband shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and the two become one flesh but it's a greater mystery because it speaks about Christ and the church so Paul takes advantage of this and he says hey if this is important to you here the household of God is much more important because it is the family of God It's interesting because life in Ephesus, life on the valley floor at Yosemite, busy and hectic, there was still order in the household. And it's interesting to see what lengths society had already taken it to. And how the church is somewhat a mirror of that household in Ephesus. You wouldn't think about this. Episcopos, overseer elder. Big households had an episcopos. They had an overseer of the household. The husband and wife would hire someone kind of like a foreman that was over everything. An executive that would look after the domestic servants and how everything was operating throughout. They had deacons, servants that carried out all the different things of the household. Serving tables, doing laundry, all the household chores. So they had an elder, they had deacons. And then they would hire a didaskala, a teacher, an educator, someone who would tutor children. They would have that in the house. It ran in a hierarchical way. Everyone had their jobs. And so it was seen as an orderly fashion to do that. But something was happening to society. As husbands and wives were hiring all these parts to take care of things, they abdicated their roles. Husbands ended up going and meeting with other men. And talking about the latest thing. It's like wanting to meet up with other guys and talk about what's going on on CNN or MSNBC or Fox News and those kind of things. The political climate or the social issues of the day. They're doing that and they're not paying attention to their own household. Women were leading th- leaving things to others and becoming more prominent You can say that feminism took root for the first time during this period of time. Women were very, very 
influential. On Paul's missionary journeys, you can see it in chapter 14. You can see it again in chapter 15 when the gospel is preached and how people were responding to that. And it has something that is very interesting. It says, and the leading women of the city came to faith. So they had a prominent place in that. Now we know when the family goes awry, roles are forgotten, disaster is not far behind. We'll talk about women wearing the pants in the family because men aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing. It happened in Genesis. Eve was told, your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. And he won't do it in a way that is good. But the woman will try to step in. So the women in these households were becoming the matriarch, not the patriarch, the matriarch. And slowly by slowly, the social culture, the family culture was disintegrating. And it was having an effect on the church as well. Because the church was inviting in everything that's happening in the home is good for the church. Because we're both households but it's both going astray. And so Paul says, okay, hang on, time out. We need to be about the business of Jesus Christ. We need to be His body again. Timothy, I need you to put things in order. So in chapter 3 of 1 Timothy, Paul instructs him on his purpose for writing He says, I may be delayed, but if I am, I'm writing to you these things so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. Great is the mystery of godliness. And then he goes into a Christ hymn. Paul says, Timothy, we've got to put things back in order. And it is a big job for you to do, but you can do it. Because when people do what they ought to do in the household of God, when we are following Christ, when we are exercising our gifts, when every joint and every ligament is working together, it glorifies God and it is a light to the world. And it changes culture. It changes culture. People begin to see a difference. It restores order in households. Men begin to, to lead as they're supposed to lead in headship. They love their wives. They teach their children in the way of the faith. Women take on their roles in nurture. They become... Disciplers of other women, women teaching women. We see that in Titus. All these things begin to come back into order. And so this is the occasion for writing and the purpose for writing. And so we get to Timothy with all that in the backdrop. We see that Timothy, this one that is called to do this work, is a true child in the faith. That's what Paul calls him. 
in this text, this short piece of verses 1 and 2 that goes with this introduction, it is what Paul says to Timothy to encourage him for the work that he's about to do. Because if you listen to the backdrop, if you listen to the setting and everything else, you go, man, what a mess. You know what we would do today? Here's what we would do today. I'm out of here. I'm going to the church down the street. I'm going to the church across town. Or maybe I'm done with the church. Maybe that's going to be our response. Paul's saying no. No. If you're a true son or daughter in Christ, if you're attached to this body, you need to be about the work of addressing how one ought to behave in the household of God. You need to be the encourager. You need to be the corrector. You need to be the one that is pursuing Christ on your own and then discipling others. Because the Word of God is for that. It's for training in righteousness. It's for equipping. It's for correction. It's for rebuke. And all of that works to the glory of God. So Paul says to, to Timothy... He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and Christ Jesus our hope. Paul's an apostle. He met Christ on the Damascus Road. He is a witness of the resurrected Christ. He heard the gospel from Jesus himself in Arabia. He became an apostle to the Gentiles. He has the authority by the command of God. That's like a royal decree. And it's from God, our Savior, and Christ Jesus, our hope. There's an equality there. He starts to set the standard of God is our Savior, and Christ Jesus is our hope. They are equal in deity. They are equally God in two distinct persons. The Holy Spirit will be mentioned later. He starts with the Trinity up front. He says, God, our Savior... In Christ Jesus, our hope. God is the one that initiates salvation. God the Father chooses. God the Father initiated Christ's coming to take on flesh, to go to the cross, and raise Him from the dead. So God is our Savior. He initiates this process of salvation. It's an Old Testament concept that He brings forward. Maybe because Jesus, uh, uh, Timothy's mother was Jewish. His father was a Greek. And so you have this rooted in the Old Testament, God is our Savior, but Christ Jesus is our hope. Our hope's eternal. Our hope's to come. Our hope is now in the already and the yet to come. Everything that Christ promises us is yes and Amen. So He is our hope. It's interesting that Paul uses a phrase here that you don't see in some of his other epistles. He will, in this particular epistle, say, Christ Jesus, over and over and over again. Not Jesus Christ, our Lord, but Christ Jesus. Part of the reason is he wants this Ephesians church to remember the letter to Ephesians. That first chapter that speaks about who we are in Christ. There is union with Christ. 
by faith. There's a union of the church in Christ with one another. So Paul repeats this as Christ Jesus, who He is the Anointed One, and His person, Jesus, who will save His people from His sins. He is putting forth hope from the very beginning for Timothy, whom he then says is his true child in the faith. Timothy would have grown up always hearing from people how bad he was. Why do I say that? Because a Jewish mother and a Gentile pagan father would be recognized their son or their daughter as illegitimate. You're a half-breed. You're not one, you're not the other. You're no good. What are you good for? Paul encourages him right from the get-go and he says, I want you to know who you are. You are a true child in the faith. You are a child of God. You have a royal heritage. (laughs) You are the Son of God Almighty. You are a prince. You're a true child in the faith. That true has the idea of genuine. You're the real deal. They may say you're legitimate, but in Christ, you're genuine. You're good. You're true in the faith. And he leaves him with a threefold blessing. Paul is known for adapting letter writing in his salutation with grace and peace. Grace being the Greek word and peace being the Hebrew word. Grace, unmerited favor. Peace being shalom. But for Timothy, knowing who Timothy is, we'll learn as we go through this book that Timothy was timid. He was shy. He was sickly. He's supposed to drink a little wine for his stomach. He was fearful at times. Not sure that he's the right person for the job. But as you read the Word of God, he is exactly the right person because he is needy. He is dependent. He is submissive to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's exactly what is needed. But in order to give him more encouragement, Paul adds that one word, mercy. We studied Ruth in the fall, and we learned that Hebrew word, hesed. Elios, the Greek word, the pairing with the Old Testament, hesed is the same word. It's loving kindness. It is help for the helpless. It's help for the needy. So here's what Paul does. He says, you're true, you're legitimate, I'm your father in the faith, I'll testify to that, but God is your heavenly father. You have everything that you absolutely need, but I'm going to pray for you in this way. I'm going to pray that you would have God's grace. Now God's grace is unmerited favor, it delivers us from sin, but then there's grace upon grace. Grace that comes to sustain us, grace that comes to provide for us, grace that comes to strengthen us. That's the grace that he says is for you, Timothy. And then I want you to have mercy from God. I want Him to help you 
in your helplessness, in your weakness. Where you're timid, He's going to make you brave. Where you're weak, He's going to make you strong. Where you're shy, He's going to make you bold in proclaiming the Word of God. He's going to show you His loving kindness. He's going to deliver you out of misery. And then He ends with peace. Which is simply the culmination of God's grace and God's mercy. We have peace with God when we come to faith in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our sins are forgiven. Our transgressions are put away. We are bathed in the blood of Christ. We are holy with the righteousness of Christ. And we have peace with God. But there is an inner peace that comes through our relationship with God. And it comes by actively being poured out upon over and over with God's grace and God's mercy. So a threefold blessing for Timothy to go about the work of telling the church, don't teach this, teach Christ. Because there is no other name under heaven by which man can be saved but the Lord Jesus Christ. Timothy, you will have grace and mercy and peace and it will come from God the Father and it will come from Christ Jesus our Lord. That should spur you on to do this work. Brothers and sisters, we have the same work. I hope you see the picture that God has given us from up top where we can see with the mountains and the clouds. Where the church is going in proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ to make disciples of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all that Jesus has commanded us, knowing He is with us. That's a work that we're to do. But in doing so, we need to be teaching, sharing the apostolic teaching, the teachings of Christ. We need to be inviting them into the body of Christ, having communion with them and with the Lord. We need to share in worship. We need to share in prayer. Those are the things that we look forward to doing. Jesus has a call for your life. It's not to live in isolation. It's to live in this community. Would you follow Him? Would you become a vibrant part of this so that we can work on the valley floor that is Plano, Frisco, McKinney, Richardson, the Colony, Carrollton, making followers of Jesus Christ and all the way, all along the way, bringing glory to God. Let us pray. Father, we do thank You for this word from Timothy. We do pray that um, although we had much to cover in, in the background, that we will look to You in all things, that we would look to be conformed to Your image, that we would look to be better disciples of You, that we would make disciples. Bless this now as, bless us now as we come to Your table, that we may stre- be strengthened and nourished. In Jesus' name, amen.